My name is Randall. Um, let me just do this real quick. We got to get through all of the things. Um, some of you know this. Some of you don't. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to fit the context here. So I um, have a rule that anytime I mention my children up here from the stage, um, if it's an individual child, then I owe that child yogurt extreme. Okay? So you got to know that. Um, we have not really been able to, to take that up. So I think um, when everything gets back to normal, I probably owe them 20 yogurt extremes. I don't know, but I'm going to mention them again today. And then the other thing is this, I would love to do this. I would, because, because I have to just kind of like give you a verbal reenactment of this story. What I would love to do is just say, why don't you all just come over to my house tomorrow morning, um, and see this unfold. And so, um, as much as I would love to extend that offer to you, I'm not quite sure that my wife would be down with that. So I just got to tell you this story, but I want you to, to kind of see this. And my guess is it's probably going to resonate with some of you, especially those of you that have school-aged children. How many of you have school-aged children in your home right now? Some of you, okay. Remember that thing that they used to do, um, go to school? And you know how they've been at home for the past year? Every day like a summer vacation for a year now. So this scene has unfolded every day in my home for about a year, okay? Now, we have a kitchen in our house, but attached to that kitchen, we have a very well-stocked pantry. Thanks to my wife, um, she does a great job of just keeping that filled with all sorts of foods. Now, we're not preppers, right? We're not looking towards the end times and going like, we gotta make sure, we just, it's just a part of like what we do. So, yeah, I get it. Sometimes we run out of trail mix, right? But some of the point is we've tried to stock it up so that as we are working, our kids can kind of come down and get snacks in between classes, whatever. But here's what happens every single day. I'm not kidding you. One of our children, if not all three of them, will come down, look into that pantry that is stocked with food, and this just happened the other day. I won't say which particular child it was. Um, but looking in this well-stocked pantry that any single one of you could come over and make some th type of meal out of, right? Or a snack. And one of them was just like, ugh, there's nothing to eat, right? And I'm like, I could go in there. I could find any. I could eat raw spaghetti. There's something in there to eat. I don't, you know, like, that's just not a true statement. So... That scene unfolds. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Now, I get that there's times where you're just kind of like, ah, oh, I want this, I got a craving for this, and it's not there. But generally speaking, we, my wife does a great job of just keeping snacks and treats there so they can come down during the break. So um, what my wife said to this individual child of, of mine is, um, do you not see all of the food in there? Has there ever been a point where, where there hasn't been food in this pantry for you guys to eat? Do we not feed you, right? And, of course, the story just kind of, you know, goes from there that we get some snacks and stuff. I mean, I think that's like a perfect question, and it gets really to the heart of our passage today. Have I not fed you? Now, most of what drives, I think, our children's food blindness is that they're just hangry, right? And like you can't see through the fog of being hangry that there's just a ton of food in there. And here's the deal, Exodus chapter 16, the Israelites, they're a bit hangry, right? Um, so here's what we need to keep in mind. This is like about a month after they've been freed and rescued from slavery in Egypt. And Israel is really, if anything, uh, you could even make the argument that they're not even this yet, but if anything, they're like an infant nation. They're, they, they are a people, um, but, but now they're being formed into this unique nation. And one of the things that we always have to keep in mind is that um, some of the Egyptians fled with the Israelites, right? So you've got this nation being formed of primarily a people group that are Israelites, but now it's been blended. And again, we've talked about that. Like that's, the, that's like the first fruits of the Abrahamic covenant being enacted that, that these Egyptians would go and be formed into this covenant community. Um, but they're barely a nation at this point. And so really, this should be a teachable moment for them. And God does have some things to teach them 
through this story and us, I think. So, so let me pray and we'll dig into it. God, again, we just come before you humbly um, and we submit ourselves to your word. We believe that the scriptures that we have are from you. Um, they will not lead us astray. They contain truth. Um, and most importantly, they are the entirety of them from Genesis to the end in Revelation. They are the good news of Jesus. They are the gospel. They point us to every single word, all the difficult passages that we embrace and come across. They are pointing us to uh, your plan of redemptive history, which is the finished work of Jesus that frees us and forms us as a people. So would we come into submission to you today and your revealed word to us? And ultimately, would we submit ourselves to the living word, your son, Jesus, our king? In your name we pray. Amen. So, so really this passage, and we're just going to hone in on, on Exodus 16 today, and we won't get through all of it. It's a big, it's a big um, chapter, but there's really this broad theme that goes through this passage. We've seen this before, and we'll see it again in the book of Exodus, but it's, it's really this a key theme throughout the entire Old Testament, um, and it's really kind of in hyper-focus for us in here, chapter 16. And it's this, and it's a basic theme. It's that we see human sinfulness here, so we see the rebellion and the folly and the disobedience of the people of Israel, and, and then we see that being countered with God's provision, okay? Now, you should see that theme if you read the Bible all throughout. I mean, you can see it in the very beginning of the story, right? There's God, and he's providing everything for his people, a life of fruitfulness and flourishing and then there's sin that enters the picture. So, so really, it's all throughout scriptures, but it comes into this hyper-focus here. So, um, because we, here's what we see in this. We see, on the one hand, we see people, and we see their sin, we see their disobedience, and then on the other hand, we see how God so graciously gives and meets his people despite their rebellion and disobedience. So that's the main message here, and what I want to do for us this morning is just give a few more details that Exodus 16 reveals. Like, how does this work, and what does this look like in the lives of the Israelites? And I think there's some very transferable realities to our heart and our lives. And so we're going to see um, three ways in which human sinfulness kind of manifests itself in this passage, and then we're going to see three ways of God's provision. Um, so so we'll, we'll dig in. We'll start. Let's just look and go back to verses 2 and 3. So it says, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So you see what they're doing. Like, what is this whole congregation of people now doing? They're dissatisfied. They're complaining. They're, they're grumbling, right? So, so, first of all, way back in chapter 5, if we flip back there, um, when the because we've seen this before. This is not the first time that the people have expressed this discontent, and then it's kind of formed in in, in manifested in, in, in grumbling and complaining. So again, like way back in chapter 5. Um, and keep in mind, you have to keep the context of what the people have been freed from for this story to really make sense. So remember way back then, and, and, and Pharaoh said, here's the deal, no longer are we going to even provide the straw for you to make these bricks. You now have to go out and get the straw. And so they just like doubled down on the intensity of that labor. And the people grumbled and complained against Moses because of that. And then next, you get to this picture that we've looked at most recently at the edge of the Red Sea. They've been freed as a people, right? That should be enough. No longer are they enslaved, but Pharaoh and his army is in a relentless pursuit of Israel because he changed his mind and hardened his heart and said, I've made a huge mistake. We shouldn't have let the people go. And so now at the, the precipice of the Red Sea, the people feel entrapped, and they're like, we can't cross the sea. 
We've got Pharaoh's army closing in on us and they begin to accuse Moses and they begin to complain and grumble once again. And then finally, just what Matt walked us through last week at the end of chapter 15, after Israel had safely passed through the Red Sea, it's provisioned every step of the way by God, right? Um, they, God did something in that passing of the Red Sea that they couldn't do for themselves, but we're told that now they can't find water for like three days, which I get. That is about the maximum that you can go without water before you really start to get in trouble. But when they finally did find water, like they just didn't like the taste of it. It was too bitter for them to drink. And once again, the people begin to complain and grumble against Moses. And if you've been in that situation where you desperately need water, as long as it's safe and potable to drink, you don't care what it tastes like, right? But they're once again grumbling against Moses. So what did Moses do? Well, Moses cries out to Yahweh, and, and, and then Yahweh turned that bitter water into sweet water, right? It's like taking a LaCroix and making it into something actually drinkable, right? Um, God, God takes that undrinkable water, makes it into something drinkable, because God is providing every step of the way for his people. And then we read um, and, and take this in mind in chapter 15 and verse 25. It says this, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. So that's important because here's what we're going to see. We're going to see this, this cycle here in the wilderness go over and over again, which is this. The people like are met with a seeming obstacle that they cannot fix for themselves, and then they begin to grumble and complain about that, but then God will respond, and he responds through his provision, but then there's a testing of the people. So keep that in mind. Um, the people have a need. That need is then met by God, and, and it was meant to be most often this statute for Israel. This is something that they should remember that they should listen to, they should keep in mind, and they should actually follow, right? So, so like, if we listen to Yahweh, if we listen to God, if we trust Him, we recognize He's going to take care of us. So, at the end of chapter 15, though, with the people, they're encamped, right, around these, like, 12 springs of water. There's 70 palm trees, and in some ways, you could close out chapter 15 and go, like, man, this is great, right? everything is good here. They've got water, they've got this oasis, and it's that simple tension resolved. Well, not exactly, because chapter 16 begins, and we see the same pattern, like, once again. The people, again, they, they, they are, they're met with this need, this obstacle that they can't meet for themselves. They begin to grumble, and then just like chapter 15, God responds with provision, and once again, and we, we need to see that, he calls it a test. He's testing them. So, so then let's move on. Look at verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to make it rain bread from heaven for you, right? And the people shall go out and gather. And I do believe that God was just doing this with the bread, right? Just making it, making it rain. You got it. If you've seen any rap video from the 90s, you know what that's about. So he says, listen, I'm going to bring this bread and the people shall go out and they're going to gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So, so it's interesting because certainly God's providing for them, right? The people grumble, God responds, and he provides a very tangible need for them. But the interesting thing is he says that I may test them. So there's this testing that's happening. And, and the testing is this, are they going to walk in my law or not, right? And so the, this is the second time now that we've seen this word test. So, so what does it mean? Well, I, I think that it's important, and, and, I, and I believe it's important that we think about this test like almost like kind of like an experiment, right? The purpose of which we see there in verse 4, again, which is to find out whether Israel will walk in God's law or not. Will they obey? Will they live a life of obedience, right? So that's, that's really the same idea that we just looked at in, in chapter 15, verse 26. So the question there is whether Israel will give ear to God's commandments. So what's fascinating is this. At this point in the Bible, at this point in the story of God forming the people of Israel, really, there's, there, there's no law yet. There, there are no commandments. There's 
a couple points, right? You go back to the Passover meal, and God directed them to observe it accordingly year after year. And so there are some mandates, there are some statutes, but we don't, we don't have the law. This is chapter 16 is before Mount Sinai. This is before Moses goes up and God gives him the law, what we most commonly refer to as the Ten Commandments. So this, this, this test is kind, of a, is kind of testing Israel out. Like, are they inclined to listen? How are they going to handle these commandments that God knows he's going to give to his people as he really forms them in so many ways that becomes like a constitution for this nation? And are they going to be able to be fruitful and faithful in following God in those commandments? So that's what that testing is, right? This is all meant to kind of really expose the reality of human sinfulness. God already knows that as he gives the law that the people will fail right? But he also has a plan for that to be fulfilled in the Messiah. So, so what do we see, right? Well, the first that we see is that, the first thing we see about human sinfulness is, is this, is that the people of Israel grumble against God. Now, now grumbling, and we're going to get into this, but if you track that, like there's some pl- places in the New Testament where Paul He kind of has these itemized lists of things that we would call sin that are disobedient to God. And in a couple places, like grumbling is listed in there. Complaining and being a people who grumble is listed in there. So so we're really meant to see grumbling and complaining as sin, right? It's one of those also interesting kind of words, right? Like we we probably all know what grumbling is. I'm going to guess, right, if you were honest, some of you, if not all of you, have done your fair share of grumbling over the past 12 months about something, right? Whatever it is. And so it's, it's interesting because it's one of those words in the English language that kind of sounds like what it means. Like, I know you all got masks on, don't take them off, but everybody right now, everybody just say grumble together. Let's just say it. Ready? One, two, three, grumble, right? You get it. Now, now try to say it with a smile on your face, right? Ready? One, two, three, grumble. Now, it's a good thing that you have masks on because here's the deal. If the person sitting next to you could say that word with a smile on their face, it probably means they're a sociopath, right? Um, so you just kind of get it. It's a word that like it makes you feel like you're going to make this face. You're probably going to like kind of scrunch up your face and just grumble, right? So the original word here, it means to complain about someone in an accusatory sense or to decry a situation, but not just to decry it. It's to decry it with the intent of blaming somebody for it, right? That's what it means to grumble, So we need to make an important distinction here, right? Because this word surfaces throughout the Old Testament. It's going to surface throughout the rest of this kind of Exodus story, even into Deuteronomy and Numbers, those books that I know that you love to read. Um, But we need to make this distinction because there's another word that shows up throughout the entirety, especially like in the Old Testament, especially like throughout the Psalms, and and some of the prophets, and even in this story, and we need to make a distinction between grumbling and groaning, okay? Remember back in chapter 2, the reason God even called Moses to begin with was this, because he heard Israel's groaning. God heard their groaning, right? He knew their suffering. He's paying attention. He remembers the covenant that he has made with Abraham to be a God to these people and to all of creation. And so he knows that. And so groaning is different. Like God tunes his ears in to his people when they groan. Because here's the deal. Groaning is rooted in trust and belief in God, and it's directed towards God. Grumbling is different. Every time this word for grumbling is used in the Bible, it's negative. It's talked about as sin. Grumbling is always depicted as a symptom of doubt and unbelief, and it's most often directed at a human leader. So throughout this story, the word in Exodus will repeat itself, and it repeats itself in Numbers and in Deuteronomy, and that grumbling is always directed towards Moses and Aaron. So there's a displacement. There's a disappointment with God 
Um, there's a disconnect from God because it's rooted in unbelief. It's rooted in doubt. And then it's always directed usually at a human leader. So here's the deal. Like we groan and we cry out because we're hurt. But we grumble because we're angry and we want to hurt. We groan because we need God's help in our hardship, but we grumble because we think God is harsh to us in our hardship. We groan because we know God can change things. We believe, we trust, and believe that God can change things. We grumble because even if we know God can always change things, we don't always believe that he will. Groaning is the sound of the faithful It's their cries to God in belief and worship and trust in their suffering. Grumbling is the sound of the cynic spewing their pessimism, pessimism, really wanting everyone else to suffer with them. So how are you doing with that? Like, right, in your situation right now, right, just knowing that if you grumble, that's actually rooted in doubt and unbelief. Like there's something in you that is not trusting God's God's faithfulness. You're not trusting that God's going to show up. Like whatever affliction you're facing, you're dealing with right now, are you groaning, which is a heart directed towards God, crying out to him, expecting that he will be faithful, or are you grumbling? So the people of Israel, they're, they're grumbling, and it wasn't just because they're hangry. It's because they don't, they don't trust Yahweh. Like, even through all of his provision, they're still not trusting. Even after everything that he's done, he has rescued them from slavery in Egypt with great signs and wonders. God showed up and did ridiculous things and defeated and brought judgment upon Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt and freed the people. He divided the Red Sea into two so they could safely pass through. He provided water by a miracle when they were thirsty, but still they're not trusting him, so they grumble in their sinfulness. So within a month Within a month of seeing all this, experiencing all of this, being saved and set apart and being freed, within a month of like walking through the Red Sea and seeing the bodies of their enemies scattered along the shoreline, the protection that they got from God and the safety and the rescue, Israel is still complaining and grumbling and and shaking their fist at God and blaming Moses and Aaron which is never okay, right? Their, their grumbling actually reveals and exposes their sinfulness. So there's a second way that we see their sinfulness. The people of Israel embellished their memory of Egypt. So we'll see how this kind of goes down. Look back at verse 3 again. So in their grumbling, this is what they say. They say, the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died, and they've done this before, right? They're like, hey, you brought us out here to kill us just so that we can die in the desert. There was a lot of good places that we could die back in Egypt. And now they're saying this, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. We would rather have died back in Egypt when we sat by the meat pots. Yeah, I've got some questions about what that is, don't you? I mean, how could you not? Is it, is it, a, is it a pot made out of meat with more meat in it? I don't know. It's just a heart attack pot. So they're saying we sat by these pots filled with meat, and we ate bread, like there was an overabundance of that. Now, do you remember that from the story anywhere? Like, do you remember that? Is that true for them? Were they just lavished in meat and bread when they were in Egypt? Probably not, right? So, so for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger, right? So now we didn't, we didn't have water. So first of all, now we're trapped and we're wandering in the wilderness and we come up against the Red Sea and we're going to die. And then we don't have water and then we don't have food, but God's responding by providing every single step of the way. So you see what they're doing, right? They're making an assessment. They're comparing their current situation as a rescued people to their past situation as an enslaved people. And their conclusion was that slavery was better. Back then, 
Back then, man, we were sitting by pots filled with meat and we had all the bread that we could eat to the full, which is some clever historical revisionism on their part. Because again, remember, we're told that the people were so oppressed. And I have to believe that scarcity for them, scarcity of food, scarcity of like nourishment for them was a part of that, right? And so they're crying out. They're so oppressed. They cry out. They, they groan for help. Their taskmasters were so vicious and in place these impossible labor demands on them. Sons were being ripped from the arms of their mother and thrown into the Nile River to just drown, right? The people of Israel were slaves subjected then to this horrific ethnic cleansing. And they're saying, man, it was so much better back then, right? Now here in chapter 16, like they remember Egypt and, and in their minds, they're like, man, we had everything that we needed. We sat by these meat pots. We had all the bread. And you're just like, what? Like if we took that sentence at face value, you would conclude Israel used to just live it up. There was nothing but abundance for them in Egypt, which is completely delusional, right? But we can understand why they're thinking this, right? They're hungry. They're, they're, they're looking at nothing but God's provision for them. And it's not like they're staring in front of a pantry filled with food. They're face to face with the living God who has provided every step of the way for them. And they're looking into the vastness and the expanse of God who has showed up in their presence every day and led them, right? They're with him and they're staring into the vastness and the abundance of God and they're saying, there's nothing to eat, right? It's delusional. We can understand why to some degree or another they're, they're looking at their situation and it's difficult, this new life of freedom, right? They're thinking it's so much harder than they thought it would be. And, and so they just want to go back. Like, you, you ever want to go back because you've been set free? But life is still hard. And, and maybe you think you were better off. Maybe you think things were better before Jesus rescued me. Like, do you ever want to go back? I'm going to level with you here. Nostalgia in the midst of hardship is a fruitless emotion because it often distorts the reality of the past and it dilutes the optics and so distorts our understanding of our present circumstances. Like you can always look back even in the, like I think, and listen, I get that optimism is important, but so is reality, right? And so to look back to that time and go like, we were better off in the place where God hadn't freed us yet to the place that we are now where God has freed us, right? And, 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 it, and so looking back on that thing favorably without understanding the reality of it is almost damaging them to the reality that's in front of them now. So when you're following Jesus in the midst of difficulty, like just know this, that your memory of, like we always want to go back to a point in time where we could, our perception of things was good, but, but the reality to that is there was still bad stuff back there in the past. So we don't look to the past, we look to God who provides for his people. So things were never as good as you think they were. Those, those pots of meat that you remember, it's almost like it's a mirage. Like, don't fall for it, right? Israel is deceiving themselves here. And it's just another way that we see human sinfulness. The third way is this. The people of Israel underestimated God's provision for them. So, so this part comes through and how Israel responded to God's instructions, right? This is where we see the test this kind of experiment. Will they walk in God's laws or not? Well, well, this is what God said, right? He's going to provide meat and bread. He, he, will, he will send this evening quail. So he's going to send all these birds, and then he's going to send this thing called manna in the morning. And, and the people are supposed to gather in this way. So he's going to send meat, and he's going to send basically bread. And, and then God in this passage, we're not going to walk through it through the verses, but basically gives these instructions, right? He says, six days a week, I want you to go out. They're supposed to go out and gather only what they need for that day, right? Um, they, there's no to-go boxes. They can't take a little bit extra. Just gather what you need. And then on the sixth day, he gives them instructions and says, gather twice as much because on the seventh day is Sabbath. And they're not even totally tuned into what that means yet. 
but, but what they can see, God establishing a rhythm for them, is that they would experience Sabbath rest for their soul, for who they are, for their identity. And so on that sixth day, gather twice as much because you're not going to go out on the seventh day, right? So God's already establishing this rhythm for them. So it's pretty straightforward. How did Israel do with that? Look at verse 19. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank. Now, that's a specific word, right? Just for context, so this story doesn't get weird. Stank, think like, because trust me, I know, I was a youth pastor for like years and years and years, and I took like middle school boys up to Tadmore and lived in that cabin with them for a full week. I know what stank means, right? So when, when, he, when Moses says it's going to stank, like, think middle school boy stank, right? Like that's what he's saying, right? It's gross. And, and, and Moses then was angry with them. Okay, so, so it doesn't go well, right? What about on the seventh day? What about on the Sabbath? And then let's look at verse 25 through 28. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather but they found none. So what did they just do right there? Like disobediently went out against God's design, right? They found none, of course. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? So they just failed the what? They just failed this test. The people didn't listen to God. They can't obey God's word for like a day, like a day. They just, for one day, they can't even do it, right? Before they even get the law, before they even have the Sabbath, and before they even know what that is, they're struggling to be obedient. Why? Well, I want us to kind of get under their disobedience. Like, where is this disobedience coming from? It's coming, again, from their lack of faith. Specifically, it's coming from their lack of faith, despite the reality of what they know, their lack of faith in God's provision. This is what's happening here. God said that he would give them enough for each day. You can eat as much as you want for that day, but, but what did the people do? They tried to save a little extra, store a little bit up, uh, up for the next day, just in case on the next day God somehow failed or was too busy or just simply didn't do what he said he was going to do. Or maybe there's something even deeper, right? There's, maybe there's this element of fear and doubt and mistrust happening in him that people are guarding themselves against God being a liar. Now listen, like Exodus contains the echoes of Eden, Like, you should see that. Like, we've seen that before, right? Where God's people, his creation, who he has poured out his presence and power and provision perfectly in the garden. That was a lot of alliteration right there. Um, and, And he gave for them, right? He's like, all of this is perfectly created for you to experience experience my presence with you, and, and there's food to eat, and there's, there's, there's this whole creation to steward so that you will flourish as a people. And then they're like, but what about that one tree? Like, why can't we eat from that? And then the enemy shows up, and he's like, yeah, what, what's going on there? Is God being withholding? Can you not trust God? Like, can you not eat from all the trees? And, and they're like, no, we just can't eat from that one. And then they instantly start thinking, out of fear. Like, can we not trust God anymore? Is he, is he holding back from us? Is he not providing everything that we need? And so that just resonates with us. I mean, we, that still impacts us as a people. Eden echoes, right? It casts this, and sin casts this long shadow over the story, but God is repealing that shadow with the light of Jesus in his ultimate provision, right? So, so we need to see that. Like, like I know God said, right? The people know that God said that he would give to them. He would provide for them. He would be with them. But they're thinking maybe he wouldn't come through. So let's just make sure we grab a few extra tortillas into our pockets, right? And then on the seventh day, right, when God said that there would be no manna, some of them actually go out and they, and they look anyways. Because A, they were disobedient to not fill enough for the, for the Sabbath. And then they just don't trust God. So they go out and they look. They find nothing. 
They've underestimated his provision, and, and really they've dishonored God by their lack of faith, right? Again, have they not seen what God can do? Has he not been saying the whole time, I'm doing all of these things, not just so much to exact vengeance upon my enemies, but I want to show all of my creation, my glory, and who I am, and what I'm capable of. Have you not seen? Have they not seen what God can do? So think about this. Israel, have they not seen the power of Yahweh? Have they not seen his provision? Of course they have, but Israel's response just confirms the depth of human sinfulness in that moment. So what does God do? How do we see God's provision, right? Well, Remember, like, we have, God, we have human sinfulness over here, but we wanted to throw that up against God's beautiful provision. So here's what we see in this first one. God provides when there seems no way. And we see this in the manna, right? Yahweh tells Moses in verse 8 that he's going to send this manna, this bread. And then when we actually see it happen in verses 13 and 14, let's look at that. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing. I get that that doesn't sound terribly appetizing at this point, right? A fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. But then we jump to verse 31, and it actually tells us this. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. I'm in. Sounds delicious, right? So this is now covering the ground every morning, this thin flake-like thing that sounds actually pretty delicious. So imagine that just happening every morning as you wake up in the wilderness, right? Just like it's a sheer miracle, and you can eat it. Like, that's what's happening here. So, except that the people, they don't know what to call it. They haven't given it a name. And, and so they see, they see it, right? And they said, hey, wh- what is it? <laughs> right? Which you would if you saw a fine flake-like thing covering the whole ground. You'd be like, hey, what is it? And that's exactly what they started calling it. So, like, what is it? What is it? Which, that's what manna means. Manna just means, what is it? So, so that became the name. That name is meant to convey the miraculous nature of God and his provision. So remember, they're in the desert. There's no great harvest bakeries in the desert. This is bread from heaven. Every morning they wake up, and what is it is just all over the ground because God just gives it to them. It's bread. It's right there. It's free for the taking. It's enough, and it probably tastes delicious. That's manna. So there's a lesson here. It doesn't really matter where you are. It doesn't matter how dry the ground may be or how impossible the situation feels. Yahweh provides when there seems no way, no way ahead, no way out of it. God provides. And this provision has the exact same purpose as every other miracle that God has done. He tells us in verse 7, it is so that Israel will see the glory of Yahweh. They will see the glory of their God right before them. And then verse 12 says, when they eat this bread, then you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God. Because what's he doing? He's making himself known all throughout this story to his people that he will finally form as a people at Sinai. And so he's showing them, you can trust me. I'm going to get you through this. I'm going to form you as a covenant community in which I will bring forth the promises that I made to Abraham. And that's what he's going to do. He's going to give them enough, right? And I think that that's an important message. Just as a side note, I just think about like the excess that we all like just kind of buy into. And what does it look like to be a people that trust that God is going to give us enough, right? When there seems no way out or through it, God gives us just enough. So the second thing we see about God's provision is this. God provides enough for his people. When there's no way, God provides enough for his people. Look at verse 17. This is after the manna appears. God commanded, and the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. 
So this means it's not a go-for-self situation. Collect enough for you and yours. Get enough for you and your family. And then look at verse 18. But when they measured it out with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So you could have got a lot and had an abundance. You could have got a little, but no matter what, there was nothing left over. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. So, so everybody got exactly what they wanted. Nobody was left hungry. Nobody ate too much. Nobody was like a glutton and had an excessive amount. God provided enough for his people with just glorious precision. Isn't that crazy? Like I always bend towards excess, right? Like you get a bowl of ice cream out in front of me and I'm always going to put one more scoop than I should, right? Maybe you could argue any of it's too much at this point for me. I'm working on this body real hard. But I'm always going to put one, like, I'm always going to be a guy of excess. Like, give me more, right? And, and there's a lesson that God's saying, like, I'll just give you what you need. I'll give you enough, which is crazy important, right? And here's the thing. This wasn't measured by amounts and numbers. It was measured by the contentment of the people, right? Like, you could gather a lot. You could gather a little. No matter what you gathered, it was enough. God was enough. He was providing enough, and you were content with his provision. Some people had small appetites. Others had large appetites. It, all of their needs were met, and it was all simply enough. It didn't matter. God provided when there was no way, and God provided enough. Everybody was fulfilled by God and what he gave. So there's a message here for us about the grace of God. And then we're going to see this now in this last and final example of God's provision. So if you kind of pull out, if you have Bibles in front of you, we're not going to look at it up here, but 31 through 36, as this kind of closes out, it's basically like an end note. It's kind of almost like what God has done with um, with uh, like what he did with the Passover. He's kind of giving this like end note. Here's how you should think about this. And so we see this, God's provision of manna points us to the greater provision yet to come, right? Yeah, it met a need. Yeah, it kept the people fed with energy and nourishment. But it's crazy to think that that's not what it was about at all. So God gives these instructions in verses 31 and 36 he, to, to Moses, right, about, about a way for Israel to remember the manna for generations to come. Just, just like what God provided for them with the Passover, they have this remembrance of manna. Manna has this instant, like, legacy component to it. Future generations of God's people are supposed to learn something from this manna. You could see, like, it's like an insignificant part of the story. Yeah, it's crazy that God provided, but, like, we don't need it today, but God actually wants his people today to understand what this means, right? The manna isn't only about food for Israel in the wilderness. God didn't just send the manna for a particular need to a particular people in history. Instead, God sent the manna to Israel way back then to tell us something about himself today. We see this throughout the entire Old Testament. Moses is still leading the people. Like if you get into Deuteronomy, right? Four decades after Exodus 16, look at what Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 3 says. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. So we're like four decades past the story that we're looking at today. Moses is still leading the people that he might humble you, testing you. There we go. See that again. Testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. Again, that cycle just keeps going. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the lord see it's really not about the bread it's really this whole story is really about the self-giving grace of god God gives his word, and that's what nourishes you. That's what creates life in you. Jesus understood this. Like if you go to Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus, just like Israel, was out 
in the wilderness for 40 days and he was being tempted by Satan. Listen to what Jesus says, Matthew 4, 3. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. See, Jesus knew it's not about the bread itself. So what does he say to Satan? What does he say to the enemy? He quotes who? He quotes Moses. Jesus answered, verse 4, he says, but the answer or but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So Jesus is now pointing back. So the echoes of Exodus go all the way through the story, and he's pointing back to this story, and he says, man shall not live by bread alone. Remember when God perfectly provided for his people, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So again, the bread is about this self-giving grace of God. It's about his word. And Jesus understands this word. Why? Because he is the word of God. Jesus is the self-giving grace of God. Jesus is the true bread. We know this because he tells us this in, his, in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 6. One of my favorite stories, Jesus has just fed like 5,000 people, and he is teaching a crowd of Jewish people, and they, they want to see him work another miracle. Give us more. Give us more bread. In verse 30, Jesus says, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What, what work do you, they, they want a sign, like provide for us. Our father ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're saying, like, give us more of that, like whatever it looks like, if it's this manna thing, whatever, you just gave us bread, give us more, we just want bread, we love bread, we are obsessed with carbs, right? So then they wanted Jesus to give them like that bread, but then look at verse 32. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Like, you have to see that. That's crazy. Like, we're back here in Exodus today, but we're so not in Exodus, are we? Like, like this story of Exodus chapter 16 firmly plants us into the life and the reality of the person of Jesus. Like, Exodus chapter 16 is the gospel because it points us to the living bread of Jesus. Look what he says in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I am the manna. I am God's provision in what you need. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He keeps explaining to them. So like when you read Exodus, always have John chapter 6 in mind. We talked about this when we went through. Do you remember when we went through John's gospel? You guys remember that? Forever. Um, we talked about this in, in John chapter. Like we're just going back and forth because the entirety of it was meant to be about Jesus the whole time. And he keeps explaining to them, verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna. He's saying, I am Yahweh. I am who I am. I am now the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Jesus is saying, I am that bread, and if you eat of me, you will not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of this world is my flesh. The manna in the book of Exodus is about the self-giving grace of God. Exodus chapter 16 is about Jesus. Jesus is God's way when there is no way. Jesus is God's way when there is no way. And Jesus is always enough for his church. In fact, I think the Apostle Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And he gets it from Exodus chapter 16. For, for context, real quick, 2 Corinthians, Paul has been raising financial support for the church in Jerusalem. Like they were impoverished and they were burdened by this. And so Paul has been taking a collection for them from other churches, including the church in Corinth, right? So he's trying to raise money for the church in Jerusalem because they're hungry, they're impoverished. And, and Paul wants the Corinthians to be generous like the Macedonians were. And so he grounds that generosity in the grace of Jesus. Look what he says in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, 
yet for you became for, for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And so then Paul draws out this application. It has to do with abundance and need. Paul didn't want anyone to be burdened here, but because Jerusalem had a need and Corinth had an abundance, Corinth could help supply Jerusalem's need. So the idea is that we don't hoard our abundance, but we help one another. And to make this case, Paul quotes Exodus 16. Look what he says in verse 15. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So he's pointing back to a time when God provided a way when there was no way, and he was enough for his people. And he's saying, remember that. If you fear, if you fear being a people that are filled with generosity, just recognize that it's not your generosity, right? Which is how we want to operate here at Hub City. We don't ever want to choose to save and be stingy because we somehow believe we don't have enough. We want to give generously to our city, to our people, to meet needs out of the generosity of the gospel. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying like, don't ever fear that you've got to save up and stock up. Just give and be generous because the provision has never come from you in the first place, right? Remember that this verse is about manna in Exodus, and manna is about the self-giving grace of God. It's enough for his people. And, and here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is saying, like the same is true for us. Paul is saying, Jesus, like if you fear that you're giving too much away, man, just know that Jesus is always enough. He is the bread. He is enough for his church. And Paul takes the message of Exodus 16, understands that it's about Jesus, and this is his application and it's that there is enough Jesus for all of his people. Jesus is enough, and he always provides a way. Every week, we come to the table, right? And Jesus invites us to the table, and we should ask ourselves this question when we go to the table today and hear Jesus' voice in it. Have I ever not fed you? Have I ever not been enough? Church, has Jesus ever not fed you? Jesus is the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, they will live forever. This morning, let's respond in worship. Let's sing to our King and to our Lord. Let's, let's sing songs of gratitude and thanks that he provided a way for us as a rescue and restored and redeemed people. There is a way when there was no way. We, Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He provided bread and wine to drink for his people. And so when we come to the table today, as we sing and as we pray and as we give and we go to feast and to eat, and ask yourself, search your heart this morning before you go to that table, ask yourself, has Jesus not ever fed you? And then go to that table in grace and feast on Jesus' life-giving sacrifice for his people.